0: Hi folks. This is a supplement to Wednesday's talk, Wednesday the 17th of October, concerning James Goldsmith and his speech at the United States Senate concerning the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. This was on November the 15th, 1994, where he came up in front of the senators give the negative points of the GATT or GATT treaty, after Felix, a well-known banker, had pushed the positive side for corporations to do with this treaty. Now I don't know if people realize that this is—I think it was the eighth signing of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade that happened in '94. The first one was in Marrakesh in 1947, set up at the conclusion of World War II with the United Nations in charge of it. But really beyond the United Nations, it was the Royal Institute for International Affairs and CFR that drafted up the proposals for this. It's always the same group of intellectuals and financiers that draft up these proposals so Sir James Goldsmith gives a good speech if you listen carefully it's not the best audio and it's hard to get a better copy if anyone has one perhaps you could send it to me but he does put in eloquent terms all the negative aspects of this general agreement on tariffs and trade now this is all to do with most favoured nation status etc to do with the, the dropping eventually of of taxes, import taxes for most favored nations, status, countries but it's only for the big international corporations and the GAT set up a star chamber of judges to decide uh, all their internal disputes it's not a democratic institution and these judges uh, will hold their meetings in secret and wherever the decisions are, are binding There's no recourse, there's no redress From any complainant or, or anyone who disagrees with their decisions So listen carefully about the negative aspects of the, the GATT Treaty And this was put out across mainstream news In amongst the trivia and the sports And the Hollywood affairs and all that nonsense
1: The hope at the time was to have you both together and then we could really uh, hear the back and forth and not listen to us. I had to raise some of the questions myself. I'm confident you would have raised. Let's have what opening comments you have and then the questions from the members. Mr.
2: Chairman, thank you for
1: inviting me back. Firstly, I want
2: to make clear, like I think you know, Mr. Chairman, that I wasn't business... I believe in free markets, I believe in free enterprise and I believe the purpose of the economy is not just to improve indices, but to improve the state of the nation, yours, mine. So, I'm not an anti-free market man, nor an anti-free enterprise man, quite the contrary. Felix, as you saw, is an old friend of mine. In fact, he's been my banker on and off for the past 20 years or more. But I'm in total disagreement with him. What you've heard today is the view from big business, of which I was part. And I believe the view from society in general is totally different. I believe it to be so different that I came out of retirement to start a political party in Europe, to become chairman of one of the nine parliamentary groups in the European Parliament, to fight against what I believe to be one of the most destructive issues, proposals, ever put before your assembly or any other assembly. In fact, I was watching television last night and I saw Senator Moynihan and he said, he was there, was Representative Newt, Newt Gingrich, and the words he used were probably the most important vote of the decade. It could hardly be more important. Now, I'd like, if I may, to comment on some of the points that my friend Felix made. When talking about the loss of manufacturing jobs, all the figures you gave... You put that down largely to productivity. But in the last few months, we've seen Boeing, IBM, Advanced Microsystems, as well as joining all the other companies like
1: Hewlett-Packard,
2: going offshore to get cheap labor. That's nothing to do with productivity, Mr. Chairman. That's moving to get the cheap labor 40 times cheaper. And please don't think this is unskilled jobs. These are skilled jobs. These are high-tech jobs going there. Of course, they're also the unskilled jobs. But the skilled ones are going to highly skilled people. And they are moving offshore. And if you think that's productivity, then I think you would be wrong. Of course, there's an increase in productivity. And of course, that puts pressure on the job market. But why accentuate that pressure? Manifold at the very time when you've got the pressure... by encouraging, by creating a system... that forces people to go offshore. I'd also remind you that not only are jobs being lost... but I'd confirm the figures that we all know. It was not a marginal drop in earnings... that global free trade has brought in the United States. In the United States... before NAFTA has its effect... And before GAF, which is so much bigger than NAFTA, has its effect. Your hourly wages, according to the Labor Labor Department statistics, are 13.4% down in the last 20 years. And your uh, your weekly ones are 19.2% down. Then, Felix also mentioned how competitive the states have become. Well, surely the measure of competitiveness is the balance of trade. And as you, Senator, pointed out, if you have the second worst balance of trade in history, $150 billion, that's not being competitive in world markets. Then there was the question of foreign investment. There was the question of, the words we used, attracting foreign investment in the United States, this apparent inflow of foreign investment. Well, as businessmen and you as policymakers obviously have to take both sides of the equation into account. There's a massive foreign outflow of investment, net. Take foreign inflow, take foreign outflow, the balance is negative. And then we heard Felix's te- testimony on the trillions of dollars, his words. ...that now move around in the global economy. He rightly said the global financial marketplace was totally integrated. In his testimony, he talks about $500 billion to be invested in China. And then what does he say? He says what America needs, and no doubt this is true about Europe as well... ...is an increased rate of savings. What for? To invest in China... To invest among those trillions that have to go out? Why do you need them? You need them right here. Just like we need them right where we are. We can't afford a hemorrhage. We can't increase our rates of savings just to invest them elsewhere and where we bleed to death in terms of capital and we bleed bleed to death in terms of jobs. And this is the big point, Mr. Chairman. What we are witnessing is the divorce of the interests of the major corporations and the interests of society as a whole. It used to be said that what was good for General Motors, and we all believed it, probably was true, was good for the United States. That is no longer true. The transnational corporations, Mr. Chairman, I've just brought some figures, came out recently. They now have $4.8 trillion per annum in sales. They account for one-third of global output. The largest 100 account for one-third of all foreign direct investment. Now, where do you think the bulk of that investment is going? It's going where it earns the most. There's no other way it can go. What chief executive can invest otherwise, Mr. Chairman? So, if, as you've heard today, you have freedom of movement of capital, freedom of movement of technology, and you can employ people for 40 or 50 times cheaper who are skilled, and you can import their products back anywhere in the world, that's the basis of global free trade. How can those investments, how can these transnational companies who have $4.8 trillion of sales invest anywhere other than where it's cheapest and where their return is greatest? Because if they don't, the system that you and your colleagues would be voting for if you pass it forces them to do it, otherwise they go bankrupt. So, we have a system for the moment being proposed. You here, we in Europe. It's the same system with the same effects on us. Which will result in massive unemployment, massive hemorrhaging of jobs and capital, but which will increase corporate profits. And it is believed by economists that you can measure... The health of an economy by the size of corporate profits. Now, I am for corporate profits. All my business life, I've worked to increase our profitability. But I believe that when you get to a system whereby so as to get the best corporate profits, you have to leave your own country. You have to say to your own sales force, goodbye. We can't use you anymore. You're too expensive. You've got unions. You want holidays. You want protection. So we're going offshore. ...and you destroy your own nation... ...I think that's short-term thinking. That's the real short-term investment. Because that is like making a profit... ...on the deck of a Titanic... ...playing cards in this clever... ...as opposed to wise way. In Europe... ...we have less flexibility... ...than you have here in the States. So rather than take a big hit these reduction in wages before your recent actions, before NAFTA, before GATT, these big hits on wages. We in Europe tried to protect wages, so we lost jobs. But nonetheless, let me just give you some figures. Two developed countries, UK and France. Let me remind you that in France, since we progressively moved towards this global free trade, the economy rose by 80, 80 percent, during the 20-year period. Fine performance. And unemployment went from 420,000 people to 5.1 million. Let me give you, if I may, Mr. Chairman, for the United Kingdom. Between 1971 and 1991, gross national product rose by 49.5%. But the number of people living in poverty has risen from 6.6 million to 13.6 million. The number of children being brought up in poverty. This is a developed country. One of the great old economies and nations. 4.1 million, 32% of children in the land, officially designated as living in poverty. Now, what good, Mr. Chairman, is it to have an economy that grows well? Where everybody and all the economists can say how fantastic. Where the politicians can say we're going to get extra growth. Where businessmen can say our profits are up. If the number of people in... And the markets are almost at all-time high, Mr. Chairman, in England. The number of people in poverty living from 6.6 to 13.6 million. And the number of children living in poverty, one in three. The number of people being unemployed in France from 420,000 to 5.1 million. Now, I'm not here as a bleeding-heart liberal. I'm a hard-headed realist. And it is my view that if we try and make profits and at the same time destroy our nations, no one will benefit from them, even those who make the profits. Mr. Chairman, those were the points that I wanted to...
1: Well, you said... uh making the policy on the deck of the Titanic. I agree with you. I was just... Uh, a lot of other points with our distinguished former witness and uh, talking about how we had to reach out, we had to do this and do that from the United States level uh, for the developing countries out in the Pacific Rim. There's just so much the economy can stand. It sounds like almost the Vietnam policy. In other words, we've got to destroy our economy to save the free world. It's the same kind of uh, trade policy, uh, apparently, that we have. The investment is going, uh, I don't know whether you were here, but the investment is going in the most recent issue of Business Week, $69 billion offshore. And, guys, and an increase of 40% down into Mexico itself. Mr.
2: Chairman, so, you just have to look at Felix yes, uh testimony. $500 billion is estimated in a few years for China.
1: You talked about the ones in England. We also have in that displaced workers been faring 4.5 million people lost permanent jobs from 1991 to 1993 in the United States. They talked about the good news, how some were reemployed, but one-fifth of the displaced workers were still looking for work. 13% had left the labor force. Further, some 47% of those back at full-time jobs were making less than before. And nearly a third of this group suffered pay cuts of 20% or more. And that's not counting those who became self-employed or the 9% of former full-timers who were working part-time. Business week, November the 14th. With a just recent issue to the uh, effect that... uh, we were really, uh, going out of business, uh, I, I, uh, let me yield to Senator action. Well, could
2: I just yes. comment on that point yes, of Chairman,
1: We got the same thing going here. I mean, I, I have the great affection for England. I, I've made the comment, uh, that, uh, they were told about this service economy, service economy. Don't worry. That's what the Harvard up East thinkers were telling us, uh... In fact, I-, I was at Renaissance with President Clinton when Michael Porter from Harvard was there, and he was still lecturing on the comparative advantage, David Ricardo. And I just looked and said, yeah, the comparative advantage. That's why BMW has come to South Carolina. We have never made an automobile in our history. I mean, come on. It's the wage advantage. $30 in Munich, $15 in Spartanburg, and yes, we make an outstanding automobile, so... These up in Washington that retrain, retrain, I can train them to make automobiles. I'm making computers. I got digital down there. I've got 48 Japanese plants, Fuji. I'm in pharmaceuticals with Hoffman LaRoach. LaRoche. Don't tell me about I need more training. It's the people with training who are losing their jobs. They don't seem to understand, but let me hear your comment. I'm sorry. The last
2: the other, the other comment I wanted to make
1: was question of inflation was
2: brought up. The biggest single component of inflation, I think it's about two-thirds, is wages. The reason why this time there's been a recovery in indices and GNP, despite the very substantial pressure, downward pressure on interest rates and uh, facilitating uh, credit through the banking system, is because salaries, earnings, have either gone down or risen very little. ...relative to the period of the recovery. And that is the whole philosophy... ...is we can keep inflation down by keeping wages down. And we have forgotten the purpose of the economy... ...which is to enrich, to create a stable society... ...and to include the population, the vast number of people in active life. And instead we believe that if we can reduce salaries... We can keep inflation down. That's the wrong way around. We've just forgotten what the economy is about, what its purpose is.
1: Uh,
3: Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Sir, Sir James Goldsmith, welcome to the Commerce Committee. The last time you were here, I wanted to be here, but I had an armed services meeting at the same time that was... Uh, also very important. I couldn't make it. Thanks for coming back again. I've listened with great interest to your opening statement. I do not know how much uh, when you came in with the previous witness. Uh, I'll ask you some of the same questions, but basically I appreciate very much the fact that you've come here today. We have not always agreed. I don't know whether you remember or not, but there was a time when you were attempting to take over the Goodyear Corporation. And since Goodyear... It was very much very prominent in our economy on a pro-kill uh, matter. Uh, I oppose you very much, but I've always uh, done some uh, study of you, and I have always admired uh, your free-wheeling spirit with regard to uh, uh, getting things done, creating jobs. Let me. Uh, start out, if I can, with you, and I'll abbreviate the question because I asked it of the previous witness. One of the concerns that I have on this matter, and I have not made up my mind, is the part of the World Trade Organization that I am afraid gives up the sovereignty of uh, the United States of America. Uh, I would simply say that I suspect that uh, your country of Great Britain and the United States would not be in the United Nations had they not the big five Having veto powers. It seemed to me like that the one-man-one-vote principle is being carried too far in this particular matter. Particularly, I'm concerned about the fact that one-man-one-vote, if Bangladesh, one of the 113 nations in the United States had a trade dispute, as I understand it, if they couldn't reconcile this to the usual procedures, it goes to a three-member commission appointed by the... Uh, uh, GATT uh, called the World Trade Organization who meet in secret and take testimony in secret and make their decision and if the decision would be against the United States of America in this instant uh, the only way that the United States of America could overturn that would be to go to the 113 nation total agreement and get unanimous uh, support to override whatever the decision was made by that three member panel including Bangladesh who uh, brought the action? Uh, is, is, is that a fair interpretation of of uh, uh, of the concerns that I state? Do you see it that way,
2: Senator? There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the World Trade Organization is a major diminution of sovereignty. Now, the exact mechanisms, I believe, in fact, the Director General can try and settle the problem beforehand, for the same reasons as Felix Rortin would not wish to get into the exact mechanisms, I will not either. I've also read a lot about it. I'm on the uh, Foreign Relations Committee in the European Parliament, and I've tried to study the issues. But the one thing which is certain, it's bottom line, this is giving up national sovereignty it can't be otherwise. Otherwise, why would it exist? What is its purpose? Its only purpose is to impose discipline on all the nations to accept a trading system and that that discipline should be under the control of all the nations that participate on a one-vote, one-nation basis. Full stop. That's diminution, dilution of sovereignty. The exact technical mechanisms, legal mechanisms, I would rather avoid because they are too technical.
3: Thank you. Let me, if you can, explain to me why uh, people that, in whom we have had a great deal of confidence over the years, I started out with uh, uh, President uh, Carter, uh, President Reagan, President Butch, and now President Clinton, and all of their key advisors I mean, that's a pretty impressive list of people who think this is a good proposition for the world and particularly America. How do you explain uh, what I assume you think uh, is the wrong opinion by all those uh, um, uh, individuals that I just mentioned?
2: Senator, the the Yogwe Round the negotiations for the Yorgaway Ground started eight years ago. The world has changed totally. Garrick, of course, started after the War 49, I think it was. The world has changed totally. Now, what the reasons which the chairman mentioned we haven't focused on, I think he did as well, Senator, which is the alternatives. And I think uh, there, there, there was other conversation. Are uh, The alternatives. The alternatives are not just closing the market, becoming protectionist. The alternatives are not... Saying we are now going into protection, and we 're going to isolate ourselves from the world, each one of them the The alternative is to have regional trading blocks which have similar economies, so we 're not trying to make our labor forces compete with people whose labor costs two percent of theirs and thereby destroying them, but and reducing their salaries and eliminating their jobs, but having negotiated bilateral agreements between trading blocks so that each region, each nation, imports those products that it needs, not those products that destroy its jobs. The regions we are talking about now, NAFTA or Europe, are vast areas. We've never experienced trading blocks of these sizes, free trade regions. Nobody thought, when these negotiations started, that communism would collapse before the negotiations were signed. That China and Vietnam and all the Soviet nations would be part of it, and all the other countries were blocked with their socialist ideas. It's all happened. You've had a massive, total, historic shift. And you're on the same track, as though it never existed. And you're being told, sign it now, because if you read the document, it's going to be too late. I mean, this is the greatest, as Moynihan, Senator Moynihan said, the most important piece of legislation. How can there be anything more important than creating a free trade area, not with Mexico and Canada, which is already important but creating a free trade area with China and India and Vietnam and Bangladesh and all the others, four billion new people, all this has suddenly happened, and the negotiations are going on as though nothing has occurred. That is why, Senator, people who were entirely reputable and wise were for global free trade before, as I was, But who have to open their eyes to reality today and say what was global free trade in those days is regional free trade today.
3: My last question has to do with uh, a key statement that you made in your opening statement, and that is regard to massive, potential massive unemployment in the United States that I think has not been looked at, Mr. Chairman, as much as we should. And I would like to ask this question in the context of a few lessons in history. Uh, you are a citizen of Great Britain. Certainly, I think that we would recognize that those of us who have done some study of history would recognize that the situation of the United States of America, once a colony of Great Britain, and Great Britain itself are extensively different because over the years, Great Britain had depended upon its... Uh, vast uh, fleet. Uh, It's uh, uh, countries that it controlled around the world and there was the British Empire so to speak. That was never essentially the case with America because we were more self-sufficient, had more natural resources obviously than you did. But certainly I think that uh, we ought to at least take a look at what I think has been a demise to a large extent of the working class of people that once uh, uh, had uh, uh, that small island over there uh, uh, a, a very bristling bustle, bustling uh, uh, economic smokestack industries that are now essentially gone. It brings me to a question that I think will give you an opportunity to expound a little bit more on what you said with regard to massive employment. I certainly am in pr- profoundly troubled with the economist's view of uh, low-wage and low-skilled workers as, you know, somewhat disposable. I remember in, in America where hard work would earn a decent day's wage. Today, hard work and good will do not seem to go as far as they once did. It is interesting that uh, this same Congress that uh, passed a massive crime bill and the next Congress will consider welfare reform. It is often said that there are a few of our local social ills that would not be solved with good jobs. Do you agree w- with that? What will the GATT agreement do to those families barely getting on by both uh, mom and dad working uh, full-time uh, in relatively low-skilled jobs or medium-skilled jobs that I suspect... Uh, will be even a more effect on what we generally refer to as middle America. Aren't they at grave risk here?
2: Senator, when I was young, I was taught, as we all were, that if we managed to create extraordinary material prosperity, we would solve our problems. And we were brought up in the belief... ...that there was an inevitability of progress. Progress of wealth, progress of stability, progress of civilization. Well, during the last 50 years... ...since I've been more or less an adult... ...we've had the greatest period of economic prosperity, economic growth in history... We have succeeded beyond our wildest dreams. The economy of the United States has soared in real terms four or five times up. And throughout the Western world, in in England a bit less, but still fantastic, in France just as much. And what has happened? Have we solved our problems? Are towns more stable? Are families more stable? Is there less crime, less people in prisons, less people in are there more people in permanent and and, and noble employment? What have we done? We have profoundly destabilized our communities. We have done everything that was wrong in social terms. We've deracinated, we've uprooted people from the countrysides. We've shoved them into towns, we haven't given jobs, we've created ghettos and underclasses, we've increased crime and drug addiction and family breakdown, all this in a period of maximum prosperity. Why? Because we were only interested in economic indices. We forgot that the purpose of the economy is not just to improve the index, it is to improve prosperity along with social stability and social contentment, and GAT, is typical of the economic instrument whose purpose is to increase corporate profits, whose purpose is to increase gross national activity, and whose result will be the destruction of the stability of our society, a continued breakdown in family life, a continued increase in crime, impoverishment. ...and all the other ills that we are now suffering.
3: Sir James Goldsmith, I thank you very, very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I would hope and congratulate you once again for hearing, having these hearings... ...because these are some of the concerns so adequately expressed uh, by Sir James Goldsmith... ...and others that you had before the committee... ...that I'm not sure that American people fully understand... And uh, I think that the American people had better have a fuller understanding than they do now.